Powered by Clear Vision Development Group, this is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Welcome to Better Than Before. This is Tony Richards, and as an executive coach and a master strategist and advisor, I constantly encourage my clients to read. Reading is a great opportunity to build your focus, business acumen, comprehension, and storytelling. This year, I've probably read 10 books so far, and on our show today, we're going to look back at some of the authors that we've featured on our podcast, Better Than Before, and the incredible stories and expertise that they've shared with us. Les Miranuk was a featured guest from last year. He's the author of Irreconcilable Differences, and his book studies the life stories of 50 of our founding fathers and chronicles how they came to grips with their irreconcilable differences with Great Britain. Now, I'm a history enthusiast. As a matter of fact, I only missed one history question in all my years of school. And I'd heard some of these stories, but there's a lot in here that I had not heard before. Here's Les Marinuk. There is a disconnect between what I call accurate history. This is unrevised history. This is history that was written in the, the founding era, and um, it's, it was written by eyewitnesses. Uh, it could have been challenged at the time if it wasn't true, and uh, that history has been revised and purged, and what we have now is is really a politically correct version of, of history. And it's and it's I, I think that some of the things that you're that, that you read in there are are new and haven't been told for literally decades. So tell me a little bit about what what really prompted you to undertake this and write these books. The, really the idea started when uh, through the 90s uh, I was I, I was often writing um, some articles for the St. Louis, for one of the St. Louis newspapers. And um, it was interesting. People would read it and they would contact me and said, oh, you know, this is this is I think this is what really happened. This is what really happened. And and the, the younger the students seemed to be confused at the time as well. And so I, I just felt like somebody had to tell the story. Um, and it's not something you can do in a single book. I mean, it's this thing's going to end up being 15 or 1600 pages. <laughs> So, so that's why it's a, a number of volumes, but um, and I've kind of got it divided into eras. But I, I've designed it in such a way that a person can read it and understand what took place during those years that each book represents, and it it, it it's laid out cause and effect. Okay, this happened, so then this happened, and and it's it's a, it's a way that a student can understand it. So I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about why, why do you feel that most Americans, not just kids in school, but some of us have been out of school for a while and even the generation before us and the generation before that, like, why do you think most of us as Americans, we really don't know the, the colonial history as well as we should? Well, I was actually shocked about that too, because when I moved to the States, I felt like at least American citizens were well-schooled with their own history. And when I started my self-guided study, I learned things, I learned facts, and then I wanted to talk to people about it. And I was, I was astounded that people were confused whether a battle was actually a civil war battle or, or a revolutionary battle, whether this general served in the revolution or served in the civil war. You know, it's just, I, I realized that people kind of knew they knew some names they knew you know documents that were done they knew battles that were fought but they really didn't have it all put together i would venture to guess that if you ask the average person that you ran into if they could name more than five of the founding fathers i bet you they'd struggle yeah i do a lot of um high school talks with uh, history students but but sometimes just a, a mix of all students 
And um, I ask that question always. That's one of my, the only questions that I ask on a regular basis. And I, I ask them if, 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 to tell me how many founding fathers they, there is. And I, I, get, I collect a bunch of answers before I tell them, you know, what I think there is. And I think the most I've ever had is a little over 30. Most people say 11, some 15, 17, something like that, but nowhere near 150. Right. How do you define a founding father? It, this is right in my preface of the book. So my definition of a founding father is one who provided distinguished leadership, exerted significant influence, or substantially impacted the establishment of America during its founding era. My definition will be further limited to the following. The 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 14 presidents of Congress who served prior to our federal constitution, 33 prominent generals who served during the Revolutionary War, the 39 signers of the federal constitution, the first chief justice and, and the Supreme, uh, of the Supreme Court, and his three associate justices, and 20 of the most influential congressmen who gave us the Bill of Rights. So that's basically it. If you use that criteria, you get 150, and then I added George Washington in, so it's 151. And I think you also you added in uh, Tinch Tillman, John Lorenz, and Thomas Paine, right? Yeah, most people have not heard of them. That's why I didn't bother <laughs> including them. But um, yeah, so Thomas Paine is, is actually... Most people say he was a deist, and um, there is there is evidence that he that he was an, a deist late in his life. But during the founding era, he was not a, a deist. So this series of books, there's three of them. The third one's not been published yet. So tell me a little bit about the format, how these books are arranged. Sure. Okay. The the irreconcilable differences is the first book. The time frame that it covers is 1750 through 1776. And it's everything that leads up to the signing of the Declaration. Um, and that's why the name Irreconcilable Differences. So prior to the Declaration, America still had allegiance to the British government. And, um, and it wasn't until the signing of the Declaration that uh, Great Britain launched full-scale war on America. And, and so the next book is Liberty or Death, and that's all the war years that covers chronologically as things happened, what happened, what, you know, this happened, so that happened after it. Um, and then when the British finally sail off, they leave New York and, and head back to Great Britain, that's where liberty or death comes comes to an end. And then the work I'm using, working on right now is Dawn of a Nation, and that starts the the month after the British leave, and it's all about the, the, the sequence of events that lead up to the Constitutional Convention, the election of George Washington as president, his, his first cabinet, the judiciary, and the, the first Congress, which I have always referred to as just the second Constitutional Convention. So there was things passed in the, in the Constitutional Convention that needed a Congress to pass like the amendments. So that's why it had to be the first Congress that that gave us the Bill of Rights. It, it, it wasn't part of the Constitution originally. There's two stories that I wanted to bring up, and I just want to get the author's viewpoint on these stories. One I'd heard before, and that is some of the battles that George Washington participated in before he was a general. Uh, when he was serving in the Army, uh, there were some battles with Native Americans, and he sort of became known as the bulletproof George Washington. And so by all accounts, he, he should have been killed in some of these battles. Yeah, so that dates back to the French and Indian War. So that was really the coming together of the colonies to, to battle one uh, common foe, and that, that was France, and then and they had the Indians on their side. So... Um, in, during one of the battles, and it was near near Pittsburgh, uh, the today's Pittsburgh, um, he was in a battle that he got ambushed on both sides, uh, and there was a lot of people killed. The the general Braddock was was killed, and through the course of the battle, uh, he was you know, on his horse. Well, actually, he's on 
three different horses because the, the two horses got killed and shot from underneath them. But uh, he did have bullet holes through his jacket. And many, many years later, they did a excavation of the battle site. And they actually found one of his buttons from his vest. And it had a just a little dent on the side that was a, that, that had been caused by a bullet. So he was either very, very lucky or divinely protected. Yeah, and I enjoyed the part in the story, I believe, where the um, American Indians, they developed part of his legend where they told stories uh, about his, must. Be, I forget exactly how they phrased it, but it must have been a divine appointment. The chief at the time, after they realized that they couldn't seem to kill him, that they they just called the warriors off of trying to shoot him, and they just they concentrated on other soldiers because they felt like he was like uh, a spirit was protecting him or whatever. Right. So it's um, it, yeah, it's uh, and it's that's I took that whole thing because I knew it was that own oh, that whole story was almost unbelievable. So I took it word for word out of a book that was. 200 plus years old. So it was, you know, it was word for word out of the book. It's a quote. So then the other story that I really enjoyed, um, and this one I had not read before was about Ethan Allen and about him marching into a British fort. Yeah. The Ethan Allen and the green mountain boys that was early on, uh, before the declaration was signed, so they, they were just, uh, it was a few months before the declaration, so the, the, the British hadn't, hadn't um, launched full-scale war on America yet, but they were gearing up. There was, there was, they had lots of soldiers in America, and what Ethan Allen felt, his, his idea was, let's, let's, let's attack one of their outposts, and if we're successful with our attack, it'll cause the British to have to use up soldiers to more highly protect these outposts. And that was the philosophy. But anyway, when he, uh, during the battle, he, it was, it was a bloodless battle. He knocked on the door and um, he told the, the, the person taking care of, of the fort that, that he wanted to take possession of it. And the, the keeper, the custodian, said, "Under what authority do you do you demand this?" And he said, "Under the authority of the Great Jehovah." And they promptly so, gave him the fort. Right, he did. And <laughs> and so again, again, I, I I put that word for word out of a, out of one of my two hundred year old books because it it if it was just my words, it wouldn't be believable. It's just amazing. They just immediately surrendered the fort to him, and uh, just I mean, that's just a really I, I love that story. Now, there are two other founding fathers in the book I wasn't as familiar with, but I thoroughly enjoyed the stories about them. I'm looking for your perspective. Um, and this is one of the 93 uh, people you cover in the first two books. And the first one is John Witherspoon. Father of the founding fathers, I think he's been coined. And um, so he was the fifth president of Princeton. And uh, so he was a Scottish uh pastor in and he was offered the job to take over the presidency of of Princeton and he came to America did to, he took it over and he changed the curriculum he decided that every graduate from Princeton would would be equipped for public office so he changed he 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 taught debate he taught um law he taught everything that that, that he felt somebody would have to know uh Political science, whatever. So, uh, and and consequently, the the graduating classes that that came through Princeton the last decade before, actually, it wasn't even a whole decade. It was about eight years before the Declaration of Independence was signed. Uh, of those, seventy-two became founding fathers. So it it, it um, very powerful what he did. The other person that I really enjoyed learning more about was James Otis. Kind of a for forgotten guy. Um, and that's because he really didn't have, uh, he was a, a leading voice. He and uh, Samuel Adams were the, probably the two most vocal in, the, in Massachusetts during the uh, early, early years, maybe the, the first seven or eight years before the declaration was signed. And he was actually 
very, very good lawyer. He was he was employed by the Crown. He was it was uh, on their legal team, and he just turned from them based on some of the the laws that British British was 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 passing and became a leading voice for independence and he was uh, he was attempted to assassinate him and uh, because of that he he kind of lost his sanity and he he, he never did do much after after that in his life and he was and he died a few years later but he he was a leading voice that that kind of started the whole thing going if i had to name three people that had there was that was the the, there were the trumpets of the revolution. It would be uh, Patrick Henry, it would be Samuel Adams, and it would, it would be James Olis. Tell us a little bit about the importance of this subject matter. Like, why do you feel that this is, this is really important for people to know about? The U.S. right now, our political system is very pol- polarized. There are, there are laws that are, that are being contemplated right now that our politicians are telling us oh, this is what the founding fathers would have wanted or would have intended. And really, they don't have no idea. They, they don't know who they are. They don't know what type of people they were. They don't know what they would have stood for. Or, you know, they, they're just blurting out something to help give what they want to pass credibility. And, and so that, I, that was the second reason for the writing the book, so that people would know who the founding fathers are, uh, what they believed in, and then once you know that, you can kind of said, no, they wouldn't have wanted that. Or, yeah, they would have wanted that. Um, and, and so it, 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 it's just a, a check against what we're supposed to believe in right now. Such great insight from Les Marinuk. Stay tuned because I'm going to have more authors from our Better Than Before show right after this. Brought to you by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. The 2020 Subaru Crosstrek. It comes with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus an economical 33 miles per gallon. And the Crosstrek has the lowest five-year cost to own in its class for three years running, according to Kelly Blue Book. Love is out there. Find it in a Crosstrek. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control. But that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. Over the past few years, I've had the pleasure of interviewing incredible authors from around the country. Last year, I spoke with Jason True about his book, Social Wealth. Now, his journey as an executive coach inspired him to share his step-by-step process for overcoming the challenge of building extraordinary business relationships. Essentially, all in any organization, whatever we're doing is about the relationships we have, both internally and externally. And the challenge is people just don't know how to build these relationships, right? And they look at some people, for instance, that are great salespeople, and they're like, I wonder how they do this magical mystery thing of building these relationships super fast. And then there are people like introverts that are like, well, I wish I could have great conversations that are meaningful with people, but I hate small talk. And there's just a lot of other people with objections and challenges. And so they're living essentially really small lives. And 
I wanted to make a blueprint. Instead of writing a 300-page book about all these stories, I wanted to give someone an actionable handbook they could go through and they could get results really quickly. Right? And it would be 150 pages or less of just real-world advice, how to step-by-step that if they followed the recipe, put it in the bowl, mixed it, they'd come out with great chocolate chip cookies rather than trying to, you know, 30%, you know, action and 70% marketing and sales in it. So that was really the inspiration behind it because I've realized in my own life, like having great relationships has been something I've been really fortunate to have and learn how to do, but it's been a significant trial and error. And I was looking at all the other books that I was reading, I had to piece together all this information, right? I didn't find it in any central place. And I found that to be exasperating and really difficult. And I wanted to call all this information in one place and people could have it and understand what they need to do. Because a big piece of relationships is a numbers game, right? I mean, you, you can't, you have to meet enough people to figure out the types of people you interact with best. And if you only interact with a few people, you're most likely settling in your relationships because those people may not be the best people. They're the only ones you have available. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's the story uh, behind your executive coaching practice? How did you get drawn into that particular profession? You know, I was fortunate in Silicon Valley that when I went out there, I got to, I was at the gold rush and I was just able to work with a lot of great people. I got to work with Steve Jobs, with Reed Hastings, the current CEO of Netflix, um, you know, just tons of other really significant individuals and great leaders and managers. And I got to learn from a lot of these people and see the, the, the things they did well and a lot of the mistakes along the way. And for me, human behavior, trying to figure things out and bring out the best of people was just something that I'm extremely passionate and I'm curious about what I'm really good at doing. And I decided at some point in my corporate career to do a side hustle and then eventually just turned it into something that I was doing full time because it's what I love to do. And it's not really work, it's something that I just enjoy doing. I'm sure you're drawing on some of your experiences. You worked in some high-performance cultures in Silicon Valley, and you've coached some people that have created uh, some high-performance culture. What What's a key concept to understand about creating a high-performance culture in an organization? Well, I think first you have to create extreme trust with people, right? Trust is the fundamental building block that people skip over. And I would, how you think about extreme trust is on a scale of one to five. One would be, I absolutely distrust you. Five would be extreme trust. If it's not a five, it's essentially a zero. So that's step one. Step two is you've got to create a psychologically safe environment where people can speak up, share their opinions, give feedback, right? Don't have to be perfect. I mean, all of these things are required because it's a lot of it's trial and error. And sure, there has to be accountability, but if you don't allow people to be themselves and bring out the best in each other, which usually happens because they're living either in a culture of fear or of being perfect or of measured on some straight metrics without really understanding what's behind it, um, you then create a fragmented team, right? And then culture overall that underperforms. And trust is kind of a, can be a little bit fuzzy, uh, or, or sort of feeling oriented. How do you, how do you coach people or instruct people on building trust? Well, I think how you have to do it is that you really have to understand people's experiences. So there's one way of doing it by asking questions, right? Like, what's the best way to communicate with you? How do you like to be approached with difficult information? What are your pet peeves? What are the best time of day to bring you information, right? And a whole host of other questions. So people essentially give you the user manual on how to interact with them exactly out of their words and out of their mouth, right? And you can do it by interviewing people or you can do it by writing it down and then going in and reviewing it with those individuals on your team. And that will be your manager or anyone else, right? And that creates less confusion because the problem is what happens is someone goes in a team, right? And then they have to try to figure all this out by trial and error, right? They have to guess and hope they have it right and interpret it. And that causes 
massive rifts and conflicts because we make up stories and false narratives about other people, especially ones that we don't feel like exactly agree with us or aren't of the same mold we are, right? And then that creates all these other issues, right? And then hurt feelings and misinterpretations instead of actually asking someone, how do you approach it? How do you do this, right? And like, what's the best way? How does someone rebuild trust with you, right? And then I find that like those two things are a huge step in creating, right? Building trust with people, which then, you know, the other steps and other things you can start to get to much easier, but you can't do that if you don't learn how to <laughs> crawl. You can't learn how to walk and then run. How about uh, blind spots? Let's talk about leaders and their blind spots. How can leaders, first of all, discover where they might have a blind spot? And then once they've identified it, how can they begin to close that blind spot window somewhat and replace that with a better habit or a better skill set or a better awareness? Right. I mean, I think that that's, you know, along with teamwork, right, in team building, I mean, self-awareness are the top two soft skills out there. And they're the mo least understood, right, and people don't invest the least amount of time in them also, right, because the data is 95% of people think they're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% are. And it's worse the higher up you get because no one's giving you feedback. So the couple things that you can do, one is you have to create an environment and seek out feedback from other people and ask them questions, right? Such as, what are things that I'm doing great, right? What are things I could be doing better or more of? Or what things should I be doing less of, right? What things do you think are crippling me? And to seek that information out, because the problem is when doing 360 reviews, because they've seen thousands of them and very few people use them, probably in the single digits in organizations that actually are effective. In fact, they usually make problems worse, is that you're getting feedback from other people and you get defensive. But if you seek it out, you're not, because it's something that's going to help you and you can ask follow-up questions for clarity in front of them. And people will be much more candid with you, too, about what's really going on. The second thing is really understanding the patterns that are driving you, right, and your blind spots. And most of these patterns are starting, you know, coming from things that happened in childhood or some trauma or something else, right? So, for instance, like a, a common problem is being a poor listener. And what happens is, for instance, I've had people who've grown up in households that have had a lot of kids or family members, right? So what happens is they have to scream over everyone to get heard or fight through it to get mom and dad's attention and to get them to do something. So early on, they learned that listening doesn't help them. In fact, it won't get them what they want. And it's usually at some point or other in their career, it's been helpful for them to get them to wherever they're currently at. But now they're in a leadership position and they have to listen to other people. They have to get feedback. They have to build consensus, get by and get to know people. Well, they're really poor at that because their whole life they haven't been doing it. So you have to go back and understand these patterns and things that have been going on because essentially they're creating their ceiling for them. Because if they don't get over that, they're going to be sabotage their career because they won't be able to go any higher. In fact, people will rebel and leave them and they'll probably get fired or they'll underperform significantly and they'll never know why. And they won't figure it out because they'll attribute it to other things. Like people come and tell me and say, well, the team isn't doing as well. They can't communicate. They're not working hard enough, whatever it is. So it really comes back from seeking feedback and looking at your patterns. And you know, the last thing you can do is start asking more what questions and why. Instead of why is this happening to me, what caused this to occur, right? And start to dig for the root cause analysis. So I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening right now who are saying, oh my gosh, that's me. I, I've, I have that. I grew up like that. That's manifesting itself in my career right now. What, what actions can this person take to really nail those patterns down? And, and then what can they do uh, to reverse that nosedive that they may be in? Well, I think one of the things that you can start to do is start asking yourself a questions of, you know, and I go through this pretty quickly, what I call anatomy of change is one, ask yourself, like, what are the stories I'm making up about whatever's going on, right? What are the external stories? Like in an issue where it's a New Year's resolution, right? And you want to get in better shape. Well, the stories you're making up is I can't get to the gym because my family's putting 
restraints on me. I can't eat well because I don't have time to cook, right? And then you look at the next stage is looking at what negative emotions are unfelt, right? That are causing it, right? It might come up with sadness, um, shame, guilt, whatever first comes to mind, because that'll help you start to tap into what it is you're feeling. Then you got to look the next level down is whatever limiting beliefs that you have about yourself, right? And I, and I look at them in two ways. One is I'm not enough. What don't you feel enough of? And then the second one is the question of who do I think I am, imposter syndrome, and who do I think I am, right, that I could ever lose weight or get in better shape and really get brutally honest. And then the last question is, is to ask yourself, right, when's the first time I remember feeling like this, right, with all of those things we talked about? What's the first time I ever feeling like this? Because then you could start to trace back what was the trigger and when did this first happen? Right, because that will help you reverse it back up the stack once you realize what is the root cause. And these are hard to do by yourself, but you know you need to do a level of self inquiry and looking in your accountability mirror in it, right? And then again, you can start asking questions and find five or seven people to seek feedback from that are you know people that are your colleagues, people you report into, people that are customers, people you know anyone else external, and start asking them about you know what skills. Do I do well? What do you think that I need to work on or could get better? What, you know, what's one area if I don't get better on that you think will really haunt me, right? Um, and get brutally honest and get some questions and start getting some feedback from people and just tell them, look, if you don't tell me, I can't get any better. And I need you to be brutally candid with me. I can take the feedback. I just can't take the silence because I can't solve it in my own head. The voices in my head aren't helping me. So I need you to help me. And you got to start somewhere, right? And I think if you do this, and essentially at some point, you're going to have to get some outside help because our brain is organized around survival. It's not around thriving. So you can't solve these things all by yourself, unfortunately. It's just not how we're made. Um, that's not a ploy for coaching. That's just the way that it just goes sounds like a good reason for it though it is it's a great reason for it right <laughs> i mean honestly the number one challenge every person i work with is self-awareness right and it just change happens from the inside out and i used to do it the opposite way right i used to go in and tell people well tell me about what's going on with your team or whatever even um, issues with team conflicts, right? instead of going and trying to bring people together right right away what i do is um, I'll actually start doing my team building games so they can hear each other's answers, so they can actually hear the patterns. And then next, I'll work with them one-on-one -on -one and talk about their blind spots and work on all that, and then I'll bring them together. Because then they can have a much more candid conversation about what's going on internally, and they can give a vo you know, uh, words to their thoughts and explain what's going on to the other person. And then they change. it's a game changer in resolving conflicts and building tighter teams. So. Um, it's, it's a key component for whatever it is that we do. We'll continue our discussion with another author on Better Than Before next. The 2020 Subaru Crosstrek. It comes with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive plus an economical 33 miles per gallon. And the Crosstrek has the lowest five-year cost to own in its class for three years running, according to Kelly Blue Book. Love is out there. Find it in a Crosstrek. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. And in this last segment today, we'll complete our discussion with Tristan White. He's the author of Culture is Everything. 
Last season, Tristan offered a few steps to building a culture by design. The Culture is Everything book is my learnings of founding a business and growing into a great place to work. And it is based upon these five beliefs of meaningful work. And Tony, they're pretty simple, uh, but but they really do drive me. And, and what those five beliefs of meaningful work are is number one, is that I believe we spend so much time working that we just have to find a way to enjoy it and to make it an important part of our life. Uh, number two, I believe we enjoy work when we're doing something useful for others. Number three, I believe we enjoy work when we feel proud of doing the right thing in a tough or challenging situation. Number four, I believe we, we enjoy work when there are defined boundaries around what, around what we should be doing and we have some freedom around how to do it. I call this number four step, the freedom within boundaries. And I think nearly every person enjoys knowing uh, what they can do, what they've got freedom to do, and where the boundaries are so they know what's, um, what needs to be done by when. And the last one, one, Tony, number five, is that I believe every team, business, or organization can create this freedom within boundaries environment that is the foundation of a really strong culture. And so, Tony, that, those five beliefs of meaningful work that uh, are very important to me and the foundations of, of my philosophy, I guess, uh, they, they really are quite simple, but they are based around the idea that people can do wonderful work and teams can do some amazing things together uh, when there is a culture by design and that is that there, there is real intent put behind the culture of a team. You talk about the four key foundations uh, to building a world-class culture. Could could you share some of those with our audience? Like, what did you find that were really key points? Mm. So, so, Tony, this is absolutely the. So, I'll give you the tiny bit of background, and that is that I've discovered that uh, you can allow a culture in a team to occur by default, uh, which means pretty much you're eternally reacting and firefighting as a leader. There's uh, you're moving from issue to issue. Uh, problem to problem and probably email to email when we allow a culture by default. Uh, or if we really intentionally create a culture by design, it results in the time and space that most leaders are seeking to be able to grow their business and uh, have a little bit more control in the, in the way they go about their lives. And that's the, the foundation as to why building a strong culture is important. And then as I've, um, I've grown, I've learned and I've stuffed plenty of things up to be honest with you tony made plenty of mistakes um but the summary of where i've got to as to what has worked by having a culture by design is these four steps to building a strong culture and those four steps are firstly discover the core secondly document the future thirdly execute relentlessly and lastly a step called show more love now, Tony, would you like me to go into a bit of detail as to each, uh, each of those steps? Yes, I was going to ask you about the very first one. Like, tell me what you define as the core. For sure. Tony, the Discover the Core is has really got two main um, main parts. Firstly, it's 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 the core purpose. It's the the why does the business exist? Simon Sinek might have uh, might describe this as the why of the business. In the early days of growing the physio co, Tony, I was. I think mucking around is the right word to use with trying to find a mission statement and a vision statement for our business. And I was just confused. I, I couldn't figure out what they were and what was the right thing to describe. And I didn't even think our business was a real business until it had those things, um, which, which was pretty naive. Uh, but I discovered from Jim Collins uh, in his book, Good to Great, that a core purpose is a really great way to define why a business exists. And so I worked hard at discovering what the core purpose is of our business. I worked with my wife, who was an important part of the founding team, and also with some senior members of our team. And I researched all sorts of other core purposes. And finally, we settled on the core purpose for the PhysioCo as the PhysioCo exists to help seniors stay mobile, safe, and happy. It's a physical therapy practice for older people where we go on site to their homes to help them stay mobile, safe, and happy. And so the core purpose was discovered and that's a critical part that's now been set for the last 10 years and we've been able to build a team of people who are all committed to the cause or this purpose of helping seniors to stay mobile, safe and happy. So Discover the Core has got a core purpose as a critical part. And the second part, Tony, is, is something also quite simple but not so easy to define and that is three to five core values or behaviours that we expect and, and we share in the team. 
And so by defining both the core purpose and the core values, we give some real direction and real clarity to our team members as to why we're here and what we're trying to achieve. And secondly, the way we do things. And by setting those boundaries up, by discovering the core, that's a critical part of the core um, of the strong team culture. Now on the core values, how do you reinforce those? How do you make those come alive in your organization? Look, t- Tony, I learned this from um, from Vern Harnish, the uh, author of Scaling Up, and that is to embed them in every part of your business that you possibly can. Uh, and what I mean by that is that we use core values in our recruitment advertising. We re- use them in our recruitment process to assess new, cli- um, new team members. We, we use it in onboarding processes. We use it in ongoing reward and recognition programs. We use it an ongoing assessment of performance. We use it in as many places as we possibly can, including sharing stories of people living core values in daily communication, in daily team huddles, in email newsletters, in as many places as we possibly can is the is a simple answer to that one, answer to that one Tony. How do, you, um, how, how do you integrate new employees, like the onboarding process? How does your culture uh, assimilate people into it? Tony, we, we spent a whole heap of time uh, figuring out our onboarding process and, and even uh, 15 years into this business, uh, we, we've got a project happening now to refine that onboarding process. But in short, it goes something like this. And that is that there is a full day welcome uh, process that happens for new starters, new team members. They come to our to our office. They're welcomed. There's a welcome pack for them, and they're inducted in the morning. It's an induction into the culture. It's about the past, the present, and the future of the physio co and the people involved. Uh, then we down tools and have a little celebration lunch, a little welcome lunch for the new um, starter to really celebrate them because we're wrapped that they've chosen to join us on our journey at the physio co. Uh, and then in the afternoon of the first day, we go more into the, the specifics of the job that they'll be doing and, and they meet their team leader and they get started on the tasks they'll be doing in the incoming weeks. And then the remaining um, parts of their first two weeks is really a shadowing and working with other team members, uh, both their team leader and team members, so they get to know where they're going, uh, what they should be doing, where everything in is, and it's a really a, a two-week onboarding process, which is then followed by an integrated um, so, and supported way into the, their new job, which includes regular contact from our people department to, uh, to check that things are working well, and, it, and it, it ends, the onboarding process ends after three months when we have the first of their quarterly, and the quarterly is a quarterly review process, which uh, which the team leader and the team member sit down and discuss what's worked, what hasn't worked, and where their next what their next goals are going to be. So let's just back up one more step from that. So then, uh, when you're going through your hiring process, um, what's your selection process to make sure that you're bringing people in that are going to be a cultural fit? Mm, so th- this is one of the most important steps in building a strong team culture. Tony is that we we have to do everything we can to find the right people to firstly attract the right people to apply and and then assess them during the recruitment process, and uh, it was Tony Shea from Zappos who described the wrong team members coming into a team culture as polluters, and they very quickly pollute the culture if we don't get this right, and and so the. The recruitment process, which is really part of the execute relentlessly part of this uh, four steps to building a strong team culture, because it is critical you have a process, it is robust, and you do execute it relentlessly over and over again as you uh, assess new team members. Uh, but in short, Tony, the the, the, the process is learnt uh, from the top grading method, and the critical parts of top grading, in my understanding, in my experience, is that it needs to be a multi-step process and it needs to include multiple people to assess the new starters and what i mean by multi-step is it needs to include possibly an online application followed by a phone follow-up followed by an interview potentially followed by a site visit and potentially followed by another interview to really get to know a person a bit like a dating process uh if you have a first date it goes well uh, then you want to have, spend some more time with the next person. It goes goes well, and it may progress. And if you're lucky, you might get engaged to get married, and you maybe even get get a job and uh, and and you get married, uh, Tony, in a in a in a work sense. And um, so multi-step is the first part, and multi-person because existing members of the team uh, interpret 
the purpose and the values of an organization just a little bit differently. And it's important that we make sure that we're assessing people against the purpose, against the values, against the vision as to where we're headed and making sure that there is multiple people assessing and making sure that we're bringing in the right people and avoiding that, that idea of a polluter as much as we possibly can. Yes, Jeff Smart um, is uh, the pioneer of the top grading process, and I know a lot of people who use that process, and it's certainly uh, certainly really, really effective. Now, tell me a little bit about what are some of the traps or pitfalls that you experienced as you were building this? Uh, in the book, it goes into like a 19-step process, but what were some of the missteps or things to watch out for uh, when when someone is uh, working through this method? Look, I think one of the things, uh, just to zoom out for a second, Tony, I think one of the, the big mistakes that I made in the early days was to, when I discovered this idea of a, a strong team culture and starting creating a culture by design, I, I really naively used to think, that we could have a, a, a team with uh, with one big, strong team culture. And, and overarching, we do have that. And we do have, excuse me, we do have that linked to the core purpose and the core values and the vision. Uh, however, I really forgot or didn't realize that there's so many subcultures within an organization. And what I mean by that is in the early days, we used to have these drinks on Friday night. We'd, um, it was called First Round Fridays. Uh, and the first round of drinks after work on Friday night was um, was I, I used to shout, I used to pay for the first round of drinks, invite everyone to come in and have a drink, and uh, and hopefully we'd have a bit of fun and connect as a team. And we had a team of about 20 people at that stage. Uh, Tony, it was a small team, but only about a handful of people would come to these first round Fridays. And I was devastated. I'm like, why are people not showing up? Why, why are they not connected? Why is it not working? But what I didn't realize, Tony, was Friday night suited some people and Friday night completely didn't suit people that have got families, got kids, got weekend sport, got all sorts of other commitments in their lives. And the subculture of the younger crew who didn't have any, as many commitments were, were up for it. They were ready to have a drink. And, and I was in that category at that, that time. But uh, the subculture of other people with different interests, different beliefs and different commitments was something that was never going to work for that particular initiative or idea. And so one of the really big learnings for me was that you can have a strong team culture which are connected by important things, but never forget there are there are subcultures within your team which we need to understand the individual individual needs and wants of people in, inside the team. Now, let me ask you this question because I'm sure this comes up every time I talk to a person or a business leader about culture and they say or ask the question, how long does something like this take before you start seeing the positives? Yeah, so look, this this solution of, of creating a culture by design is absolutely a, a, a solution for leaders who feel reactive and feel stuck and feel like they're moving from issue to issue. And I can help them with them, some quick wins as to how they can make some quick progress on their culture. But inevitably, it is not a quick solution. In my experience, it takes a good six to 12 months as a minimum to really embed these important systems inside a business before we start to seeing the snowball effect of the right people being completely engaged in the job and therefore becoming advocates and attracting other people because that's the beauty of a strong culture. You have the right people doing the right things and they become advocates which actually help to attract new business and new, and new team members. But that takes a minimum of six to 12 months in my experience Tony. What are some of the things that you have found to be very effective as far as energizing a team or getting a team highly motivated toward uh, a project or an outcome? I think the important bit is, is we've already touched on this in some way, Tony, and that's selection. And that is making sure you've got the right people on the team in the first place. And once you've got the selection right and, and you've got given that you're, you're very, very most attention, it's about connection. And it's about connection between the leader and the team members. And it's about connection between the team members who are working well. I, I think it's it's all well and good to think that we can work together in an effective and motivated way um, and turn up at, at work and get the job done between nine and five or whatever the hours may be. But I think when there's a really strong connection between the team members, 
that's when we get a really um, a stronger motivation and a stronger level of inspiration. And, and one way to do that, Tony, is is in the show more love part of the culture is everything system. And that is that stuff goes wrong in people's lives. We have ups and downs. We have wonderful times when we might graduate from college or buy a new house or get married or, or all those good times. But bad stuff happens too. Um, relatives get unwell. Accidents happen. Um, sadly, divorces and relationships split ups do, do happen. And it's at those times we get a real opportunity to, without prying, but respectfully lean in to be supportive people in our team members' lives. And I think by having having a budget of both time and, if appropriate, money to send a, um, a bunch of flowers or a small gift to say, hey, I think I know things are not going great at the moment, but we're here for you and when the time's right, we'll see you back at work and, uh, and we're looking forward to working with you when, uh, when and if you're, um, you've got things sorted out in your, in your personal life. And I think connecting with team members on a deep level like that is the way you get a strong level of connection and a great long-term solution to, to a strong team. These are just a few of the excellent authors that we featured on our podcast better than before. Now, if you'd like to hear more of the interviews from these authors, you can visit our website at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Now, that's our show today. Better Than Before is brought to you by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. I want to wish you a happy 4th of July. Celebrate our America independence that we're commemorating on this special holiday. Be safe no matter what recreational activity you try to do during this wonderful holiday. You can follow us on Twitter at Tony Richards 4 and at Clear Vision DEV. On behalf of Whitney Coker and William Foster, I'm Tony Richards reminding you that everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.